The year is 1863, and it finds the Confederate States of America clinging to their last stronghold on the Mississippi River. The name of the place is Vicksburg. Lose it, and the CSA would be sliced in half. We'll go inside the Union campaign to win the Civil War by capturing this city on its high bluff next. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to a pivotal event in the American Civil War, one that left scars that endured all the way through the Second World War, but that has never been covered with the richness brought to it by today's author. The book is Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy. Sailing us down the Mississippi to lay siege to this city is Donald L. Miller. He sketches the year-long effort to dislodge the Confederate defenders, and in the process tells us a story with all the drama and significance that makes us read history in the first place. Gone is the notion of Grant just sitting around waiting for the people inside the city to emerge from their gopher holes and throw up their arms. If you've been with the History Author Show from the beginning, or taken a deep dive into our archives, you'll recall our conversation with Donald L. Miller about his book, Supreme City, How Jazz Age Manhattan Gave Birth to Modern America. He is the John Henry McCracken Professor of History at Lafayette College, and he's also written City of the Century, The Epic of Chicago, and The Making of America. Professor Miller also just earned the prestigious Fletcher Pratt Prize for the outstanding book on the American Civil War in the year 2020. Okay, now that the riverboat has reached the Confederate Citadel on Old Man River, Let's join Donald L. Miller and lay siege to Vicksburg. I'm joined on the line by Professor Donald L. Miller, author of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. Welcome back to the History Author Show, sir. Thank you very much. It's good to be back, Dean. Well, it was good to hold one of your books in my hand again. I held Supreme City and having worked right there in the heart of it all, which is what Manhattan is and New York is. At the time, we talked about so many of those areas there in Midtown around Radio City Music Hall that really are burned into our minds. We've seen them in movies. We know all about them. You transported us back to the Jazz Age. You enabled me to walk those streets with a whole new appreciation. You do the same thing here for us in Vicksburg. You take me back to a battle that could seem like it was a foregone conclusion, and you make us live it again. You show us that, like so many things in history that seem as if they're 
complete fates already afterwards that this was anything but and that it required somebody with Grant's abilities not that he was a genius you write that Sherman William Tecumseh Sherman his right-hand man dismissed that notion but that it required real work here and for you it required a lot of work also to write this book and it required you to keep a lot of details straight something I wanted to start with is where your book starts and that's William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. That novel sets you on the long path to writing Vicksburg, a project which you say had an interrupted life as you describe it. It took you a while. So walk us through that. How does a novel inspire you to write this great work of nonfiction? Well, I had done a lot of research before I read Absalom, Absalom. I enjoy Faulkner Sanctuary and all that, but it was in the middle of my research that I, you know, I had a copy around the house and uh, I picked it up and it blew me away. I, you know, Faulkner makes a comment in one of the biographies I read that for him, you know, a story begins generally with a one idea, a one mental picture. When I read Absalom, Absalom, I got that mental picture. It's about a guy named Thomas Sudpin. It's 1833, and he's in frontier country in Mississippi in a place, a fictional place called Jefferson, Mississippi, which is really Oxford, Mississippi, Faulkner's hometown. He's a kind of John Wayne character. He rides into town all alone, all his belongings in two saddlebags. But he has a bunch of slaves with him that he's bought in Haiti, where he was a, an overseer. And he buys some land from an Indian tribe, and he goes outside town and near a swamp, and he begins to build a house out there and uh, works these slaves with he just drives them with ruthless disregard for you know for their health or anything else. And but he's in there in a in a swamp with them, pulling wood out of the swamp. And mosquitoes, are, battalions of mosquitoes, are buzzing all around him. They cover their bodies, the slaves as well as Sutton, with clay to drive off the mosquitoes. And they get the house finished, but um, it's a crude house. It doesn't have chandeliers or rugs or even doorknobs. So he gets some slaves to go down to the Mississippi in some big wagons to uh, buy all these things, the, the rugs and cutlery, and and furnishes the house completely and goes into town and marries a woman, and now he's belonged to the local slaveocracy. He's a slave, own, a slave owner, and he expands the number of slaves to around 40. He gets pulled into the war, and he and his son go to war, and um, when they come back, there's nothing about Grant in the book, by the way, but when they come back, everything's gone. The Yankees have invaded Mississippi, and his fields are fallow, his plantations in absolute ruins, and his slaves are all gone. And I kept thinking, that's Vicksburg, and a little place above Vicksburg called the Yazoo, actually a fairly large place above Vicksburg called the Yazoo Delta. Yazoo River runs just north of Vicksburg, directly above it. And above that is the Yazoo Delta, which runs from Vicksburg all the way to Memphis. And I thought, the planters I was reading about, the, the plantation owners I was reading about, that, that the founders of Vicksburg, they replicated the experience that Faulkner describes. I mean, Faulkner is describing their experience as well as the, you know, the people around Oxford. They were in there with hundreds of slaves in this, this mosquito-ridden place, malaria, yellow fever, fighting all these things, and with, again, ruthless disregard for the, the health of their slaves, even for their own health. And they built one of the largest cotton-producing areas in history. And they did it in a matter of 15 to 17 years. And then it's all gone with the Civil War. So 
I wanted to get out of the reader's mind the idea that when we're dealing with Vicksburg, we're dealing with Margaret Mitchell and Gone with the Wind and that kind of world of these magnificent tower, these magnificent sprawling plantations. I wanted him to see that Vicksburg was frontier country and it was settled by a tough, hard-nosed capitalists. Uh, slavers, yes, but also capitalists are trying to hack out a, a living from the wilderness. And one of the reasons I think they fought so ferociously in the Civil War is they had just built this world and they held on to it tenaciously. It's a lot like the capitalists I describe in, 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 you know, in, in my New York book. Most of the capitalists I describe are largely self-made and they hold on to their fortunes and their companies and tenaciously. Um, they're against unionization. They don't want anybody having a voice in the company other than themselves or family members. And so I got a sense, you know, I, I wanted to create that sense of what this place was all about. And and I realized, too, that this is a novel about liberation. It's a novel about a slave-based civilization that was destroyed by a guy, actually, Ulysses Grant, that in 1861, when the war broke out, was shelving uh, leather goods in a hardware store that his dad owned in Galena. Yeah. It's a great story. I mean, Grant brings down, he, he captures an army at Vicksburg in 1863. He splits the Confederacy. He regains for the Union control of the Mississippi River, but he also destroys the plantation system in Mississippi and frees you know, over 100,000 slaves. So I, I was looking for that and how Grant did it and how he did two things at one time, fought a major campaign, the most difficult, easily, the most difficult campaign of the war, and, uh, and at the same time, how he manages a social revolution, freeing these slaves and putting them to work also on things called contraband camps, where they're paid actually miserable wages, but they're paid wages to grow cotton, and they're provided with utensils and clothing by the U.S. government, and they work for either government agents or northern overseers who are hired by the government. So it gets them, you know, and, and they had some protection too. Grant recruits over 26,000 young black men and puts them in Union Blue. That's amazing. And he does it by the end of 1863. And That's a first, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And, yeah. and one of their responsibilities is guarding these contraband camps against um, – uh, guerrilla bands in the South that were out to recapture their slaves and re-enslave them or just terrorize uh, these settlements. So I, I knew I had a, an interesting story on my hands. I knew I could give the reader what you were talking about, a different sense, a different picture of what the old South was like. And let's forget that world word old because this is a new civilization here. I mean, Mississippi doesn't come into the Union until 1818. Hmm. And these areas of the Delta aren't really settled until the 1840s or 1850s. So it's frontier country. Bring that sense, that sensibility to the reader. Because, you know, place is very important for me in my novels, and you hit on that earlier on. I really believe that a good historian has a responsibility to tell a hell of a good story. And you have to use the storytelling techniques of the great writers of fiction, the Faulkners and the Fitzgeralds and whatnot, you have to have strong narrative drive. You have to develop character and have great characters in your story and have them interacting. And you have to build in something else that you wisely pointed out at the beginning here. You have to build in this sense of contingency. I want to create the idea that maybe 
it's not going to turn out like you think it did. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody once yeah. said to me, and it didn't stick for a while, but then it like popped up. Hindsight distorts, and it can distort. Now, it, it's a good thing to have, and it gives you perspective, and people say that's why you should read history. And But hindsight can be um, disarmingly bad in, in many cases if you're a writer. Because if you know what's coming, if you know the North is going to win the Civil War, and you have that implanted in your mind, what you're going to emphasize, and what you're going, and history is all about selection, what you're going to emphasize. This, it's, this is a book about Vicksburg, but it's the author's book. It's my book about Vicksburg. I make the selections. And if I just want to write a book about why Vicksburg fell. And then I'm only going to talk about those things when I know the conclusion, I know the conclusion that led Grant to take Vicksburg. And I'm not going to deal with the dozens of failures that he experienced. I'm not going to see that there were points in the story when he could have failed to the extent that Lincoln would have pulled the whole operation out of Mississippi, uh, replaced Grant, replaced Sherman, replaced Adam Report and Reporter. They're the three partners in command and, and really you know, responsible for subduing Vicksburg. And you can even make a case that if this campaign had occurred in the East, in Virginia, for example, where there are a lot of reporters close to the Capitol, close to Washington, D.C., close to the Confederate Capitol in Richmond, Grant would have been placed, either for drinking or alleged drinking or not just not for incompetency, but for failure to achieve the objectives of the campaign, which is to capture Vicksburg. I mean, it took a long time and uh, it was ever in doubt. And also, I came to appreciate in Grant is this is a campaign completely, almost completely of improvisation. When he first went into Mississippi, he didn't have proper maps. He didn't have a good scouting service. He didn't have good intelligence. Everything was new. But he had this almost inborn sense of geography, a sense of topography. And in history, I think geography is king. You know, it really determines an awful lot about a battle because battles are not fought on pool tables. Right. Battles <laughs> are not fought on ground. There's all kinds of terrain issues involved in this thing. And this is a messy battle. It's very hard for people to understand, you know, if it's not told well, because there's so many serpentine, twisting, narrow waterways north of Vicksburg. There's bayous. The camps are overflooded. There's the power of that river, the Mississippi, a mile wide, and Grant's camps initially are uh, on the other side of the river in Louisiana, and they're, they're flooded. Men are dying in great numbers of disease when Grant first arrived there in force in January of 1863, just after the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation. And his army's sick, terribly sick. The men are dying in great numbers. And it's so bad that what men most worried about is how they were going to be buried. They knew they were going to die. And uh, they wanted to be buried in a coffin. And instead, to protect the camps from the overflow of the Mississippi. The Mississippi at that time of year was swollen. It's January and February. It's very high. It's higher than the levees, these high earthen uh, mounds that protect the uh, inland plantations from the swollen river. And um, a lot of times the river would rip into these earthen mounds and where the men camped on these high grounds, but also buried their dead. And dead soldiers would drop into the river, some in coffins, some without them, 
And uh, one of the women who came down regularly to uh, Mississippi to, to help out, to bring medical supplies and fruit and vegetables, and Prince Scurvy and whatnot. Her name's Mary Livermore, and she's kind of the Jane Addams of the um, of the Civil War. And her first image of Vicksburg was seeing coffins floating in the river. And then one day, one of her coworkers is rolling bandages and storing supplies near the river, and she hears some men cheering. And she goes outside, and she sees they're on the bank of the river. And what are they cheering about? Well, here comes a a boat towing a barge, and the barge is filled with wooden coffins, crude wooden coffins. And they know now that they, when they die, if they die, when they die, they'll they'll be buried with dignity. That's how bad things were. So much disease, and I think it's two to one overall that I read in Vicksburg that you say men would die. They'd die more of disease than in battle. And this is a lot of casualties. In two days, more died near Shiloh when Grant's in charge of that battle than all the previous U.S. wars combined. It's it's just a huge scope. And to me, having grown up in the East, having grown up in New Jersey and in New York, I say, well, Vicksburg is just a name to me. It's maybe a point on a map when I start reading this. And things like the term contraband that you used, you talk a little bit in Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy, about why you choose to avoid it, although they were called contraband camps at the time. There are so many things in this book that as you're speaking, not just because I'm going to do the interview, but because I learned so much, I was entertained. It sounds strange to say entertained maybe in a book, but of course you write a book so it's also making the reader interested and invested in these people. Just as you say, when you read Faulkner's novel, sure, you knew it wasn't true, but you became convinced in that, hey, I can't tell this history of Grant's Mississippi Valley campaign without going into the war waged on slavery by his army. As I was thinking, listening to you speak about crafting the story and putting us in that moment, even though we know the ultimate conclusion that the Confederacy is not going to win the war, it's maybe like when you watch young people play a game, right? You know there's not a ton at stake for them. You know that by the time they're in college, they're not even going to remember who the guy was that struck them out or who the kids were that were picking on them on the other team or anything like that. We know that as adults because we've lived through that, right? You mm-hmm. you maybe can't even remember the name of some of the bullies when you were in grade school or even high school. And yet we're invested in it for them because we empathize with them. And we do that in history, too. Grant, we know he has to overcome these challenges that he has. We know that he's fighting a war behind guys like Henry Halleck, old brains, as they called him, the general that's undermining him. And he has a worse drinking problem than Grant. That jumped out at me. And the reason it jumped out at me is because hey, by this point, I'm pulling for Grant. I'm seeing him actually trying to win this war when everybody else is sitting around. And as you said, if it had been in the East, it would have been too much attention, too much pressure on him. They certainly wouldn't have allowed him to do it his own way. And you had General George McClellan, and he tells Halleck, hey, don't hesitate if you want to arrest Grant. And I had to sit up in my seat and say, my gosh, this guy, not only does he have to worry about the Confederates, not only does he have to worry about disease, but he has his own side that are trying to undermine him throughout. That's just a compelling story. The fact that it's nonfiction, the fact that it's shaped so much of our world today is just a bonus for me. Yeah. I mean, we know the outlines of the story, but when you get into the story, it's just even more interesting. I mean, Grant 
what a character. I mean, he's washed out of the army, uh, forced to resign for drinking problem. Uh, he fails at everything, real estate, you know, farming, the works. And he winds up, as I said, at this working for humiliating experience working under, working for one of his brothers in this little lead town called Galena, where he's moved with his wife and, and a couple of his kids. And um, the war breaks out, and um, just by good fortune, he becomes a captain. He's, you know, they, we desperately need officers. He's back in the army, and his local congressman has the year of Lincoln, and Lincoln appoints him a brigadier general. Grant reads about it in the paper, didn't know anything about it. <laughs> and he arrives at this godforsaken place called Cairo, Illinois, which is at the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi River pointing directly downstream and starts to raise an army and off he goes and with the idea in mind of using the southern rivers where the Confederates built forts to protect them against the Yankee invasion. He sees them as avenues of invasion, highways of invasion into the south. But you take Grant, eight years, 1861, he's just getting started. The next year he wins the biggest at the time victory of the war at a place called Fort Donaldson on Kentucky-Tennessee border and captures an entire army. Uh, he'd do that again at Vicksburg. He's the only general in the world. Capture an army, he captures two. <laughs> if you consider Virginia and R.E. Lee, you got three. He called for the unconditional surrender, and that rang a bell with a lot of people. Uh, the Union was losing the war at the time. Well, one year after that, 1863, he takes Vicksburg. One year after that, he's named general-in-chief of all United States armed forces, managing the entire war. One year after that, 1865, he takes Lee's surrender and effectively ends the Civil War. And a couple of years later, he's president of the United States. So in less than eight years, he goes from the hardware store to the White House. Yeah, a long way from stocking shelves. <laughs> it's a long way. <laughs> and he's fighting a third battle, too. I mean, not just against nature and not just against the enemy at Vicksburg. He's, he's fighting a battle against the bottle because he's a high-functioning alcoholic who would go in these sprints, these drink sprees, and clean his act up and kick the habit for a while. And who knows what the cause of it is, what the triggers were. But uh, he drank throughout the war, not generally in situations where there's a crisis confronting him. He certainly didn't drink in combat. There was one time, though, at Vicksburg when it's a moment of very high tension and um, he has the city besieged, but he has an army behind him in his rear, uh, forming up at the capital of Mississippi with Jackson, which is east of Vicksburg. It was led by a general named Joseph Johnston, who at the beginning of the war was considered the top Confederate general, and Grant considered him a better general than Lee, even after the Civil War. He worries about Johnston, and he takes a boat uh, up the river, up the Yazoo River, and out to see uh, if Johnson is indeed moving toward Vicksburg. And he goes on a bender on the boat. It's a wild bender. And um, a lot of people who are Grant hagiographers just worship Grant and, and don't want to admit they ever made a mistake, refuse to admit this. Some people say that the reporter who brought it forward, a guy named Cadwallader, was never even there. <laughs> Well, I found in the Chicago archives at Chicago Historical Society, I found he worked for a Chicago newspaper, Ted Walter did, and I found a dispatch um, sent from Satarsha by Ken Walter on the very day that Grant went on the drinking spree. So it doesn't prove that he went on a drinking spree, but it certainly proves 
account, an officer's account, who saw the incident and reported it long before Cadwallader wrote his uh, wrote his story up, and and the stories match very closely. So in that particular instance, it, I'm I'm convinced that it occurred. Maybe there was some exaggeration in the story, but it certainly occurred. But to me, that doesn't diminish Grant. My dad was an alcoholic, and I saw that, and he beat it, and uh, kind of like beating a cancer, and. Um, and you fall back, and you come back, and you fall back again, and finally, you know, you lick it. And Grant did eventually lick it. And I admire my father for that, and I admire Grant for his tenacity, his resolve, not only against the enemy, but against the forces that were converging on him psychologically that were causing him to take drink. So he wins that battle, too. He's an admirable guy, a man of complete honesty, very simple, but brilliant as well. You use that phrase, lick it, and I thought of the statement he does make there after Shiloh and says, well, he tells William to come to Sherman, who's coming to him to tell him, well, hey, maybe just with a very negative outlook here on what's happening. And then he sees Grant and his determination, and he says, well, we have the devil's own day today, I believe is the way he puts it. Yeah, yeah Grant says, yeah, lick him tomorrow, though. Lick him tomorrow. It's like that, and that's the kind of thing with this guy. I mean, he's the man. He's the coming man is this phrase that you give us from the New York Tribune's Albert Richardson, who they, they could see or they know somebody's going to be raised up to win this war. And they don't know who it's going to be. Nobody in the world, including Grant himself, would have picked U.S. Grant to be that man, right? Exactly. But he, he shows. Yeah. You write at Belmont, Grant showed he was at his best when things were bad and that he'd always fought by instinct, not the book, that he has this ability to adapt and to change, which a lot of us, never mind a lot of military people in this war, don't have. We want to do it our way. We're going to keep hitting our head against that wall, and we're not going to be able to adapt and learn. And he had been pushed down, and he'd failed and stumbled so many times in his life and resisted throughout that, that desire to crawl into the bottle or the temptation to, that it's just one more failure almost to him, even though there's bodies around him and, and, you know, men are dying if he makes a mistake here. Whereas, hey, if his bill, if his horseshoeing business or that, I believe he has that, that incident where he tries to, they're going to, they're going to sell ice for fresh water. He had so many of those, not really get rich quick schemes, but things he invested in that just didn't pan out one after another, after another, after another in his life. He's, I believe a bill collector at one point, he has that bundle of cash in his boarding house and the boarding house catches fire and he helps a little old lady outside and the money burns up and he loses it. So he had so many failures that you can't help but root for somebody like that and hope to see him win. And then you see other people sniping at him. And we're able to read his mail now, so to speak. He didn't write about his drinking challenge. But you're able to look at him and say, hey, this guy's this guy's fighting all those things you just listed to try to win this war while you, you guys aren't doing much of anything. It's very satisfying then when we do see him triumph. For instance, the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, sends a spy, Charles A. Dana, to go see, is Grant drinking? Is he incompetent or both? I want you to spy on the guy. And he comes back and says that, that he's just singing Grant's praises. There's so many things arrayed against him. And then you add into it the whole idea of slavery and about what Frederick Douglass says, the liberty which Mr. Lincoln declared with his pen, General Grant made effective with his sword. This is not just the story of another battle. You know, that's one of the things, you know, if you take on a large project and you do it well, that means deep research. And uh, I went to 50 archives, you know, from California to Maine. 
you come up with some interesting finds. And one of them that I learned from the book is I always wondered exactly how slaves were freed. We know about the Emancipation Proclamation. We know that when the army was in the vicinity of slaves escaped to the Union Army or Grant actually sent out later in the war parties of three or four or five soldiers to recruit uh, slaves to come back and you know work for him as cooks or saddlers or, or become soldiers eventually. But there's all these little stories, too. I mean, in an archive in Mississippi, I found a diary by a woman named Mrs. Ingraham. She's living near a town called Port Gibson, which is the first town Grant captures when he comes across from Louisiana on April 30th, 1863, and crosses the Mississippi, which I see as a kind of Civil War D-Day, and it was the largest amphibious invasion before the actual D-Day. And they passed the Ingraham Plantation, and I got interested in Mrs. Ingraham, so I read her diary, and which I found in the Mississippi Archive, and it's interesting. She writes that, oh, her, just her and her husband, by the way, and they're elderly. She said, like, Roseanne, that's a slave. Uh, Roseanne approached me today, she says in her diary, and she says she ain't going to answer the door anymore when the bell rings. She writes in a confessional mood. She says, I I can't do anything about it because if I discipline her, she'll run to Grant's army. Next day, another slave woman says that she's not going to cook breakfast anymore. Ingraham has never cooked breakfast in her life, and she's concerned about that. A third slave comes and says she's going to leave unless she's allowed to have regular visits or a man friend on another plantation and be paid wages. So Ingraham pays her wages. And a lot of these slaves eventually leave. So just having the army in the vicinity gave them tremendous negotiating powers, and they often used them. And the archives are filled, if you dig deep enough, they're filled with stories like that. Slaves, after the war, if they wanted to reclaim for themselves the land that they had worked on plantations for their entire lives, life or the lives of their ancestors, went to a thing called a Claims Commission, Southern Claims Commission. And these were courts that were held all over the South. And in order to have a chance of, of getting some land, you had to testify and bring your whole family to support your testimony. The family that had lived with you on that plantation, they want to prove you'd been there a long time. And the testimonies were recorded and they're available at the National Archives. And the questions go directly to what slavery was like and how slaves lived. They handled the religious ceremonies, how they handled their dead, and also how they became free. And so we can get into the the lives of the so-called inarticulate um, by searching the records of these this archive. And between that and the diaries, you know, you have great sources. And the soldier diaries are incredible too, because. I've done three books on World War II, and we're now making a, a film with Tom Hanks and Steve Spielberg on one of the Masters of the Air, and we're using diaries, and the scriptwriters are. But they're censored. Hmm. World War II diaries are censored by actual military censors or by you know your commanding officer of your platoon. Huh. But Civil War letters aren't. Soldiers could say whatever they want. And I found in a lot of these letters, a lot of these kids come from abolitionist families, and you can understand why they want to free slaves. But some of them come from families that are outrightly racist. They believe in black inferiority, and they don't want their sons fighting a war to free slaves. 
So when it becomes that, as well as a war to preserve the Union, with the Emancipation Proclamation, when it becomes that, sometimes I have letters from fathers who are writing to their sons and saying, come home. You didn't enlist to fight a war to free black people. And they're not using the word black people. You know what word they're going to use. But these kids, after a while, are writing back and saying, by kids, I mean people 19 years old, they're saying, well, Pop, I'm no black lover, but I'm telling you one thing. Every time we free one of these people, we hurt the South. And they're growing cotton. If they're not going to be growing cotton, they're going to have to bring in the sons who are fighting it, fighting us at Mrs. in Vicksburg or fighting you know, another army you know, elsewhere in the Confederacy. They're going to have to come home. And the cotton that they're, that they're growing when it's harvested is used to buy rifles for the Confederate Army, cannon, and things like that. So we're really hurting the South. So um, I'm going to continue to steal slaves, and I'm going to continue to free as many as I can. So it's interesting to see that. So that, that kind of is what I meant by a social revolution, because the Yankees come in there and they are determined to uproot this institution because they see that you can't beat these people sheerly on the battlefield. You have to break morale, but also, and as part of breaking morale, you have to wage war on the citizenry. This doesn't mean killing civilians outright, like the Nazis and the Russians did in World War II. What it does mean is you war on property, and you pillage, you you forage. Oftentimes, forage means you take crops and use them to feed your horses and mules. But also, you're stealing, you know, hams, and you're stealing, you know, fruit and vegetables, and you're often stealing clothing out of the homes. They weren't supposed to go into the homes. Grant preached against it. Sherman preached very strongly against it. He even threatened to hang his soldiers. But they do it. They do it anyway. And they're hard to control. And they start to hate Southerners because it's like Vietnam. Take the troops there. We don't want to be there in Vietnam. And they start to see the people. They start to take it out on the people seeing them in, in many ways as inferior. And these kids from Iowa and Pennsylvania and Indiana come from these areas where the farms are very neatly kept, the animals are fenced in, the fields are beautifully trimmed. And in the South, the hogs and the pigs are running all over the place along with the dogs. you got an overseer with tobacco running down the side of his mouth and his shirt off barking orders at slaves. Everybody's chewing snuff or putting snuff on their gums, even the women. And, you know, they have a distaste for the whole way. They don't take care of their tools. They find rusted tools in the barns and things where they hung their tools up really neatly if they came from Lancaster or Marion, Ohio. And so you've got a cultural problem here. And um, so things get pretty ugly. If you declassify, degrade people like this, and start calling them, as they did then, white trash, you don't feel that badly when you uh, desecrate their property by going into their homes and bedrooms and women's bedrooms, smashing mirrors and paintings and things like that. There's a lot more of that than I thought. And I can see why Southerners, Southern soldiers of Vicksburg are calling Yankees vandals and physicists and things like that. They get these kinds of reports that these soldiers are out of control. It wasn't a clean war. Really wasn't it? Sherman was right. William Tecumseh Sherman. He, he said at one point in his life, "Don't expect wars, especially this war, to wind down. Wars get worse at the end. They get uglier at the end. Especially wars for national survival. And that's what this was: the survival of the Union, the survival of the Confederacy. And it's kind of like 
Japan in World War II, it doesn't surrender. And, or Germany, it doesn't surrender. We have to walk all over Germany. We have to use two atomic bombs against Japan. And so it was with the Confederacy. I mean, it got really rough. It got really rough because they don't give up the fight. You say uglier at the end, and it brings to mind an interview I did with S.C. Gwynn about his book, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. I did a little dog and pony show with him on C-SPAN. Right, he told me. He's a great guy. (laughs) Damn, yeah, he's a great, great guy. Yeah, good book, too. He gave me a question to ask you because we talked about that idea of the place. You write that Vicksburg relies more on geography than firepower for survival. When I was a young kid and you're first learning about the Civil War, you look at the map, Vicksburg is just a place there. Okay, it juts out into the river, it's flat. You know, I I didn't know anything about about it, right, at that age. You You can't go on the internet and research it. But you go there, you not only walk the ground, you get a boat, you go out there on the water, you check it out, see what the challenges would have been. So I asked S.C. Gwynn, Sam Gwynn, for a question for you, and he said, For me, water makes Vicksburg one of the hardest battles to understand. Swamps, rivers, bogs, creeks, the whole assortment of aquatic obstacles that Grant faced. You did a great job of clarifying this in your book, but how did you approach the research? How did you figure all that out in a way that you could make it clear to your readers? Well, a lot of it had to do with ignorance. (laughs) My ignorance of Vicksburg, my ignorance of a lot of Civil War history when I started. I watched Ken Burns' series on the Civil War at the time of uh, Desert Storm when I was teaching a class on the Civil War. And I was learning it as I was teaching it. And I wondered why Ken had skipped over Vicksburg so quickly. And it turns out he didn't have enough images to tell the story as deeply as he did Gettysburg. And I got interested in the place, reading. And, but then I said, i got to go there. So I went down, and luckily I ran into a guy named Ed Bars down there, and Ed is a legendary Civil War guide. I mean, he's got his own brigade, you know, and follows him around. I've met them on the trail as I was pushing this book on my book tour. And um, I had never met Ed before. He's a World War II veteran, uh, a Marine, fought a Tinian, has a withered arm. But today he's, I think, 93 years old. Uh, he was... Wow full of vitality, full of energy, and he's one of these guys that the, he, he, we met, and he said, you know, you're starting a book on Vicksburg, I'm going to give you a tour of the battlefield, and for two days I followed him around, and then he introduced me to his buddy, Warren Graybow, who was writing a geographic history of Vicksburg. Warren knew the territory, Warren's an engineer, a topographer, and they really gave me this sense that you really have to understand all the streams around there, the roads, the bayous that drove me all over the place recommended that I rent a, a small powerboat, go up the Yazoo River, go into the bayous, watch how the waters flow, take the names down, walk the hills, walk with, you know, the people had, when Vicksburg was bombarded, there were people living in, in caves. Now, none of the caves remained, but these guys knew where these old caves were and understand something about the, the soil at Vicksburg, which is very hard and uh, has a hard crust on it, so you could easily build a cave and without wooden supports and stuff. We were doing that, and we went for a drink one night, and Ed Barr said to me, you know, Miller, while you're going to write a really good book on Vicksburg, actually he said the best book on Vicksburg. I said, no, Ed. And he said, because you don't know a damn thing about it. And I said, well, 
okay, I'll give you, I don't know a lot about it, but how am I going to write the best book? He said, well, you're, going, you're coming in on this thing fresh. It's a new thing for you. He said, I see, you know, from looking you up on Amazon that you move from book to book and you're not just an expert on one thing. You, you move around a lot. You've written books about coal mining, you've books about Chicago, books about intellectuals. And this is all new to you. And because it's fresh, you're going to get excited about it and you're going to want to learn everything. Whereas a lot of us veterans of the battle um, get a little jaded, but more than that, we get concerned about the little particulars. We're not seeing the forest for the trees, and we're, we're in the trees. And uh, you can maybe bring you know a new kind of perspective to this thing, and that's completely fresh. You want to do that when you start, but you just hope that the material will come forward as you dig and dig. It's like digging for a vein of coal. And you hit that vein and then you say, wow, some great, great stories here. Uh, I found some unbelievable diaries. One of the refugees that becomes a refugee as a result of Grant's campaign is Jefferson Davis's brother, Joseph Davis. He's a very old man and he's living with his granddaughter, Lisi is her name. And she's very young. I mean, she's not yet 18. And, um, she has a 500-page diary that I found in the, in the state archives, Mississippi State Archives at Jackson, and it was very compelling. And it showed me how the, you know, you usually think of refugees with World War II or with Vietnam or, you know, today with Syria and things like that. But there was a gigantic panic migration when Grant came into Mississippi and Louisiana and it created a refugee class all over the South and I wanted to get into the lives of these people. Why are they fleeing? What slaves do they take when they flee? Where do they go? And I found another, this is a well-known diary. It was published by Kate Stone, and she's a young woman who lives along the river in a very handsome plantation with her widowed mother, and, and she's there throughout the whole campaign. I found a woman, Sarah Morgan, in Baton Rouge, who had a fantastic diary. And I found over a dozen diaries of women inside Vicksburg were there when the city was besieged by Grant for 47 days. And they talk about the starvation and they talk about the bombing because the Yankees were throwing in a lot of heavy mortars. When I'm talking about mortars, I'm talking about siege mortars. These are things to break down fortifications, usually forts along the river. The gun itself shoots a shell of 240 pounds. It's a, it's a whale of a shell. And uh, they were firing these things high in the sky. It looked like fireworks. And one after the other, indiscriminately, you can't fire a mortar accurately into the city. So they're hitting hospitals and homes and churches. And then Grant, they're firing them from the river, from barges. And uh, Grant's on the other side of Vicksburg, from the land side, on the east side. And he's bombarding the city from that side. So there's a circle of fire around the whole town. And I wanted to know how these people held up. I mean, I tried to picture a young woman a married woman with her two children cowering in a cave, a candlelit cave with these bombs exploding all around her and one direct hit and they're all dead. I guess my, having written about bombing in World War II in my book, Masters of the Air, I had a better sense of you know, the psychology of the situation, of how they, how they handled it and how amazingly their resolve is unbroken by the siege and by the bombardment. This is another part of a war I didn't realize that when I read the diaries of 
Union gunners who were firing these shells into the city. One of them is Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect's father. Hmm. That's an interesting diary. And um, they don't apologize after the war. You know, if they write memoirs or at the time when they're writing diaries, they feel that um, these people cho- chose to stay in the city. They chose to withdraw from the Union. They chose to break up this great experiment in democracy. Uh, they chose to have slaves. They wanted to be. And the only reason we're down here and not back in our beds at home and we're behind our plows is because of these people. So they're not concerned about firing on churches and hospitals. And that's a part of the war I, I didn't realize. One of the better reviews I got mentioned that, you know, in addition to saying it was maybe the best book ever published on the Civil War, I don't know about that, but that was a nice compliment by a writer I greatly admire. And he pointed out that one of the things the book does for you is tells you not just about the Civil War, but about war in general. And actually, that's what I really, one of the major objectives I, you know, I set for myself. I like to study people under stress. I think we're at our very, very best under stress, and we're sometimes at our very, very worst. What triggers fear? How do you overcome it? What is courage? Can you lose it? And if you do, can you regain it? And these are the things that I addressed in my World War II books that I was able to address as well in the, uh, because I had this rich side diary material and by telling the story of not just generals, but everyday soldiers. And I got a lot of them in the book. And everyday civilians. So it's a kind of a, it is, Dean, it's a kind of a, as you pointed out at the beginning, uh, you know, generously, it's a kind of a cultural and social history of, of a battle. I consider myself not a military historian, but in a story of war. And war is a great transformer of civilizations. I mean, our country is shaped by war. The revolution, the war, and World War II. And war involves disease and improvements in medical care. You can come about, you know, an abundance during warfare. Um, science, good and bad, you know, and uh, radar. And, uh, and on the other hand, you know, atomic bombs. I mean... Everything's changed by war. It's, 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 it's the great cultural transformer. And so I don't write bullet-by-bullet bullet histories. I try to bring in the whole world of war. And that's where I think my book is different from all other books on Vicksburg in, in that respect. Sherman says, and you write this in Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy, that he pitied the women and children living in caves and holes underground whilst our shot and shells tear through their houses overhead. But then he says those same women are praying that the Almighty or Joe Johnston will come and kill us. <laughs> and he says what you you said there, you know, they, they committed treason, they chose treason, they brought this awful fate down upon themselves, they have sowed the wind and they must reap the whirlwind. So this also tells us about human nature too. If, if you're going to have to do something terrible, you better convince yourself that, well, this is for the greater good, it's their fault, not mine. I'm not the, really the one that's pulling the trigger here, it's, it's them. And that's fascinating because these had been countrymen. These were people that Lincoln was saying they aren't in a foreign country. You know, bring well, them back in. And their generals on either side went to school together. They went to West Point together. Uh, they often roomed together. I mean, Longstreet, you know, Lee's right-hand man at Gettysburg. I mean, he isn't at Vicksburg, but he was, at, you know, one of the best, the best men at yeah. Grant's wedding. And so these guys know each other. They know each other. So fellow countrymen, brothers against brothers, you know, one of Mary Lincoln's 
brothers is killed, you know, at the Battle of Vicksburg. So it's difficult enough to kill, <laughs> and uh, but to fight countrymen, especially at Vicksburg when the lines got so close together, when Grant besieges the city after all these traumas and setbacks in the swamps, he finally gets below Vicksburg. He passes the gun batteries along the river, takes a big chance, has Porter run his gunboats by them, and send some supply ships down, and they they don't take staggering losses. They get below, and they're able to ferry the army across the river into Mississippi. And then Grant, in five quick battles, knocks one army all the way back into Vicksburg and besieges it, and has another army, Joseph Johnston, cowering in the uh, central part of the state behind him and unable to stop him. But it's at that point that, you know, you, you really see the effect of a siege when these guys get, they're just not lobbing shells into the city. They're digging toward Vicksburg all the time, closer and closer. They mine underneath some of the fortifications and they blow one of them up. That would happen later in the war, a famous crater incident in the Virginia campaign with Grant. But point is, they're only at the end in early July. Um, they're within spitting distance, literally, of the Confederates, almost arm's length away. And so the fighting was, was close in at that point. And they're chattering to one another. And at night, their pickets would yeah. make deals with one another um, so they could trade. They like to trade letters. They like to send me your Ma's letters, send me your sweetheart's letters, and I'll give you all my, you know, we're reading them all the time. I'd like to read yours. And how about some tobacco for a jackknife or something like that? And then they go back in their forts and they start firing on each other in the morning. It's hard to understand. It's hard to understand. But when you're fighting for ideas, like, like you were in the Civil War, the idea of a United States that is, you know, inviolate and inseparable, and you're fighting for the idea of a confederacy that you think has been trampled, your rights have been trampled upon, namely the right to hold slaves. It's hard. You know how ideas get people whipped up today, you know, whether it's abortion or something like that. I mean, it's it, it, it's those moral ideas that really get people, get people's blood moving. It lead to some pretty ugly things. And, and that's what the Civil War was. Yeah, it's a brother against brother, and it's, you know, American against American, but it's people who believe in diametrically opposed ideas. And the only way you can convince them, that's what Sherman said. I lived among these people. He was stationed in South Carolina. He founded LSU. He was president of the college for a time. He loved it. And he had a lot of Southern friends. But he said in one letter to Halleck, to Henry Halleck, commander-in-chief of the Union Armies for a time, he said, we're going to have to kill these people. There's about five to a thousand of them. We're just going to have to kill them and when the war's over because there's no way they're going to change. That's how bad it got on the two sides. You, dear listeners, are enjoying my conversation with Donald L. Miller, and if you wonder why it's taken me a while to do my supposed midpoint reintroduction of the guest, it's because so many ideas are firing in my head here as we discuss Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy. You talked about digging and 
coming at this fresh and you talked about coal. This book is more like when you find one of those diamond mines, like you think of Bugs Bunny, right? Open Sesame and mm-hmm. he dives in there with, with Daffy Duck and there's just jewels everywhere. And it's overwhelming, but not for a minute does Daffy Duck think he's going to give any of that back. It's a strange metaphor for the war, but right. but that's what your book is really like. And I, I say it sincerely. I hope it comes across to listeners that way. There is so much in this book James M. McPherson, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Battle Cry of Freedom, calls this book the finest and best history of the Vicksburg campaign. There are so many little things in here, like half of Grant's men at any given time have dysentery. You talked about walking the land and how much it's changed. Champion Hill, it's been mined down for gravel in the years since. So that's already a change. You have to reconstruct some of that in your mind. You have to look at the naval campaign. We haven't really even touched on that yet. You write, quote, the campaign to subdue Vicksburg, we tend to forget, was a 16-month-long ordeal begun by the United States Navy. And you say that without it, this fortified city might have been Grant's Moscow. There are so many moving parts here, and I didn't want to forget the Navy. I, I want to give respect and acknowledgement to the uh, Navy's it's, role in this. To these operations, the Joint Army-Navy operation, and the Navy side is represented by Admiral David Dixon Porter, a flag officer at the time, and flag officer Farragut, David Farragut. And they were brothers by adoption. And uh, Farragut begins this whole thing by capturing... Look, it's a battle for the whole Mississippi Valley. That's what the, It's a campaign, not a battle. Grant didn't believe that individual battles, Shiloh, Gettysburg, going to win the war. Campaigns, long, attritional, relentless, steady campaigns take huge amounts of territory and defeat great numbers of armies, coordinated efforts, like the Allies landing on D-Day and going all the way to the Elba. That's what's going to win the war. And this is a campaign to open up the Mississippi River and liberate the entire Mississippi Valley from Cairo, Illinois, to New Orleans. And Farragut starts it by coming out of the Gulf, up these treacherous passes below, have been in boats in these passes below New Orleans, and gets by two rebel forts. There's a night fight there, and both sides take casualties. And he steams sails, actually. These are large frigates. They're major seagoing saltwater ships, and they shouldn't be on rivers like the Mississippi, which have sandbars and are shallow and have these sharp curves. And so Farragut's got to fight the water and and, and had a bigger battle with the river than he did with the, the Confederates. But he gets through these passes, and he takes New Orleans, and he takes goes up and takes Baton Rouge, and he takes Natchez, and then he gets to Vicksburg and gets turned back because he can't elevate the guns of his ships high enough to hit the city. The Citadel city of Vicksburg sits pretty high on bluffs. And he doesn't have enough boots on the ground. You know, they assign him, attached to his force, a very small contingent of, of infantry, and they're not enough to storm the city and take it. And... Henry Halleck, who's fighting in Tennessee, had 100,000 troops when he takes a place called Corinth, and he didn't know what to do with them. He said, put them on occupation duty. Grant and Sherman were chomping at the bit. They wanted to go to Vicksburg and take it. And, and you could have just sent one division down there, 15,000 guys, and you could have taken it. You could have sent 1,000 and taken them when, when Farragut was down there. They had big gunboats down there that joined Farragut. They came down the river from the other side, north to south 
Farragut came south to north. They met at Vicksburg, and they just bombarded the place, plastered it with gunboats and, as I say, saltwater Navy vessels. So the Navy's a big part. And then when Grant comes back and has to do it all over again, Farragut's on sea duty, but he comes into the Mississippi several times to help Grant, and Porter is in charge of escorting Grant's troops down to Vicksburg uh, and, and Sherman's troops down to Vicksburg, the first to go down, and supporting him in every which way. I mean, Grant can't strike at Vicksburg because he's separated from it, you know, by a mile-wide river, and he depended on Porter's boats to get him across that river and took big chances trying to get into Vicksburg. I mean, one of the most audacious things, Grant, and it's crazy when you think about it. We're talking about this idea of contingency, what could have happened. Well, think of this. There's this big swamp, the Yazoo Swamp that I mentioned earlier, and Lincoln did not want Grant in that swamp. (laughs) because he had been told by Grant's own scouts that it was impenetrable. No Navy could sail through it, and no Army could march through it. Um, The rivers were too shallow, and number of curves and bends and all this other stuff, and dozens of these small rivers. Well, Grant goes in there to try to get behind Vicksburg somehow. Some of these waterways he thought would lead him behind Vicksburg. But again, he's not sure because he doesn't have a map of the waterways. He depends on slaves, actually, to help him out with this. But he takes in Porter. And Porter, by the way, the Navy didn't have to cooperate with Grant. Porter is in charge of his ships and his sailors. He doesn't report to Grant. He does everything by request. Yet they were inextricably connected. Grant would give advice and Porter would follow it. And Porter goes into that swamp with some of his very, very best ironclad gunboats. And these are the key things you need to take to expert. And Sherman goes in with him with a contingent of troops. And they get trapped in there. The Confederates fell timber in front of the boats and behind the boats. And the boats are so wide that they're hitting the sides of these streams on either side. And now they're trapped in there. And Sherman isn't with the boats. He gets, he gets stalled because he has he's on larger troop ships, old-fashioned Mississippi steamers, these big old-fashioned battle wheel steamers. And he can't, and they're getting caught in the trees and, you know, the, you know, the decks are getting blown off and things like that. And he's way behind. So Porter sends a slave with a message to get up here real fast. They're about to board my boats. And they were. The plan was to board the boats and in hand-to-hand fighting to capture them, slaughter or imprison the the Yankee sailors, take Porter prisoner, and seize the gunboats. And Sherman gets the message, and he does an all-night march through the swamp, led by a slave again, another slave. It's so dark in the swamp that they're putting candles, lit candles in the barrels of their muskets. They get through. And they get there. It's one of those Hollywood things you see about that sounds so hokey, just in the nick of time, you know. And they get there just as the Confederates are about to board the boats. And Porter's standing on the deck of his boat. And uh, a couple of officers that have been standing there with him are on the deck. They've been shot. And Sherman scatters the attackers and escorts the gunboats out. And it takes them days to get out. They have to back out. Now imagine if he doesn't get there in time and maybe he gets surrounded. Sherman gets trapped. We lose Sherman. We lose Porter. We lose the gunboats and we lose Vicksburg and Grant's out of the war. They just stripped him of his command. 
that's the contingency factor in this thing, and, and that's you know the importance of the Navy. Lincoln knew that without the Navy they couldn't take Vicksburg. They need those gunboats in service on the Mississippi. Um, they play just an enormous, enormous part. And Grant mentions that in his, his luminous autobiography that without Porter, without the Navy, we couldn't have captured Vicksburg at all. It, it wouldn't have even been close. The river is so important as a conduit for supplies for not only the commercial north, these interests in places like those farms you were talking about in Ohio, Illinois, Iowa, where they want to ship things down to New Orleans, which is why the fall of New Orleans is a Confederate calamity, as you uh, write. Yeah, absolutely. Everything comes out of Cairo. Cairo is connected to Chicago by the Illinois Central Railroad. So beef and bacon and wheat, bread, vegetables from the farms around in Chicago's hinterland, all that comes through Cairo and down the river. Everything that the soldiers need, from medicine to guns, comes downriver, including troops. And all the prisoners that are captured are sent back upriver to Cairo and then to prison camps in the north. And when you capture territory along the river, the river has to be patrolled by gunboats to keep it in Yankee hands. And uh, so it's, and even when Grant goes inland, when he takes Shiloh, for example, he gets to Shiloh via the Tennessee River. He gets to Donaldson, the first great victory of the war, on the Cumberland River. And in both cases, for Donaldson and at a place called Fort Henry, just across the way, he depends on gunboats for support. So Grant learns to be if you will, uh, a river warrior. That's what I call one of my chapters, river river warrior. Uh, so absolutely, the Navy's indispensable in this campaign, just as they were in World War II. Yeah, you were talking about the D-Day landings, and then I'm thinking of pushing in, and I was thinking of, I guess it's the longest day where the Germans capture some U.S. supplies, and they find a chocolate cake in there, <laughs> and the German general is saying, you idiots, if they can afford to send a chocolate cake all the way from America to here, something so frivolous for their troops, then what hope do we have? Grant, something that's overlooked about him, and that's not very sexy until you don't have it, is logistics, is those supplies. And obviously, in in addition to not having GPS and not having Amazon two-day shipping, (laughs) you write, Grant will be the first commander in history to mount a campaign that relied entirely on a single railroad for support. He'd been in the Mexican War. He learns this. He takes after Zachary Taylor, learns from him, his commander down there, also a former president himself. And that reminded me when you said that these guys were in school together, that also many of them fought on the same side in the Mexican War, which Grant opposed, by the way, just as an aside. But talk just about his supply lines, about why his job as a quartermaster is so important to keep that army sustained where others might have stalled and might have just dissipated. One of the great myths of the Vicksburg story is that Grant, and Grant's partly responsible for it by a couple of sentences in his autobiography where he claims that after landing in Mississippi, he lived almost entirely off, or entirely off the land and didn't have a supply line. Later in the book, he, he actually, if people read a little further and he does correct it that a little bit by saying that he had a supply line, but he had to give it up. But when he crosses the river, the first thing he, he knows, he's going to have to live off the land for some things. For meat, for example, he's going to have to steal cattle and slaughter them. He's going to have to get fresh vegetables from farms around him. But he needs fodder for his animals. He needs ammunition. 
He needs hardtack biscuits, hard biscuits at the soldiers. He needs bacon uh, for soldier diet. Um, he needs medicine. He needs army nurses and surgeons. And as soon as he crosses the river, the first thing he does is go to a place called Grand Gulf, uh, which was a Confederate fortification along the river, and that had good landing facilities. And he works with Porter, you know, to establish a supply base there. The Confederates, by the way, just abandoned it because they'd been outflanked. And he establishes a supply line all the way up the Mississippi to his camp. That he, the camps that he left at a place called Milliken's Bend, Louisiana, on the other side of the river from Vicksburg. And he starts to write communications, communiques from Grand Gulf, and they're in rapid-fire fashion. Bring this, bring that, bring that, bring that. How many rations do we have at Milliken's Bend? I want 47,000 rations. You only delivered 36,000. How many mules do you have? I want this many mules. And that's what he's writing for two days before he can move, because he knows he's got to set this thing up if he's going to get anywhere in Mississippi, where he lands literally between, and not only in alien territory, strange territory, but he lands between two Confederate armies that could have converged if they had been communicating and cooperating. They were communicating, they just weren't cooperating, but he needs this supply line before he can move, and he also waits around Grand Gulf for Sherman, who was bringing up the rear. I mean, you, you take an army of 50,000 and move it all the way through Louisiana and through flooded bayous and really rough territory and on a single road and eventually a second road, a corduroy road that they built. It takes a long time for an entire army to get all the way down there. But that's that's Grant thinking about supplies. And when he gets to Vicksburg and he surrounds the city, the first thing he does, the very first thing he does is the Yazoo River, as I said, is just above Vicksburg. He goes down there. And he establishes a port, you know, near a place called Haynes Bluff, which is a Confederate fortification along the river. And he establishes a river port there. Now the Yazoo River, here's about you gotta know these rivers, and I try to make try to make this as clear as possible. The Yazoo connects, it flows into the Mississippi. And Porter already, when Grant gets to Vicksburg, that's how they closely they work together, he got his boats in the Yazoo. And he knew Grant would come down to the Yazoo. And now Grant has instantaneous communication with the North because the gunboats can come in and the supply ships can come in and the land there. And where are they coming from? As far as Cincinnati and St. Louis and Cairo. And the supplies come down the river, up the Yazoo River, and right to Grant's army, which is besieging the city. So in come eventually 30,000 reinforcements, heavy cannon, nurses, surgeons, medicine, and the Yankees are eating real good. Aid packages from home, what's delivered to them by the Army. They have better medical care. The Confederates, on the other hand, are trapped. They're sleeping on their guns. They're out in the open at night through raging storms and blistering, scorching sun. And they have food delivered to them by the women of Vicksburg. And it's 24-7 for them. And uh, they're just holding on, and they're running out of supplies. They start eating mule meat. Some people say they ate rats, haven't found evidence of that, maybe a muskrat, but they are eating mule meat. And Grant's, the logician, is going to starve them out. I mean, here you always hear these stories about Grant the butcher throwing his men again and again against impossible odds, just using manpower to overwhelm the enemy. We tried that twice at Vicksburg. He tried to storm the fortifications outside the city before they really had them set up. 
and he thought he'd driven an army in there and had beaten it in five battles. He thought they'd be really dispirited and defeated in mind and Rose's body, and it was a good time to attack. Well, he was repulsed twice. And he said to Lincoln, he's not going to take any more casualties, casualties of that scale anymore, and he's going to starve them out, and we're going to turn in the rifles for the shovels, and uh, we're going to dig our way into Vicksburg. And that's what he does. So he shows himself at Vicksburg not to be the butcher in the sense that his campaign inside Mississippi is a brilliant piece of strategy and tactics. We have Grant, the great tactician, and at Vicksburg, it's Grant, the quartermaster, who um, is using his supplies to tremendous advantage to starve out the enemy and, uh, and not to sustain unsustainable casualties. So you see Grant in various modes. In this in this thing, and uh, wherever he goes, he has this. He gets stopped, but he has an unstoppable mentality. Someone once said, just looking at him, he had a feeling that he kind of looked like a guy that would knock his head through a wall to get to get to his objective. <laughs> and he had that kind of dealy determination, resolve. You have a great quote in the book: "Grant, serene and stable; Sherman, explosive and highly strung." A splendid piece of machinery with all the screws a little loose. And I laughed out yeah, loud he was. at that. <laughs> I mean, he's more brilliant. I mean, Sherman knew everything about everything, you know. I mean, he knew the classics. He knew modern literature. He's a Shakespearean. He loved the theater after the war. He was living in New York City. He's a bon vivant. You know, he was liquor. One of the great talkers of all time, you know. I mean, he'd talk about anything, and he talked incessantly. And he was extremely high-strung. Uh, smoked almost as much as Grant did, and Grant smoked, you know, sometimes eight and ten cigars a day. You know, he drank heavily, could really hold his booze. He's a real fighter. He took care of his men medically and things like that. And he had a dark side, too. You know, he was an out-and-out racist. He believed in white genetic superiority and didn't believe in the fighting capacities of black soldiers. So he's a complex character. Grant comes a long way on that. And then he meets him and he shakes hands with them when they want to shake his hand. And all of these people are really complex, they like are. Porter and Farragut. You know, you say they're as different as April and August. I mean, they're they're all multifaceted people. They couldn't be more so if it was fiction. I know, I know. And, and what a strange partnership Grant and Sherman are. I mean, so very different. When the reporter said, all I remember about Grant is someone introduced us at Cairo. I shook hands with him and he didn't say a word. <laughs> He just looked at me. <laughs> so I, Mark Twain said one time he, he loved Grant, and he had Grant's great order to um, the Simon Bolivar Buckner at Fort Donaldson, you know, to surrender immediately, unconditionally, you know, or he'd move on his works. And Twain used to keep that in his wallet. And he had Grant set up with a lecture bureau, and they'd he'd go around the country giving talks. Well, when the first time he sits him on a stage, he sits, Grant insisted on sitting in the middle of the stage all by himself. Someone, I think other than Twain, introduced Grant, and he just sat there for seven minutes before he said a word. <laughs> he started to leave. That's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but it's one of the great stories of Grant Twain tells. Yeah. 
not exactly George S. Patton in the beginning of the movie in front of the big flag and giving that inspirational speech, right? You think of Grant just sitting there and and not even a noticed guy. When he comes that first time, that was something that we I discussed with Sam Gwynn in his books, uh, Hymns of the Republic. You know, he gets there to the train. Nobody's there to meet him. He's going to meet with Lincoln. He gets to the hotel. They don't know who the heck he is. They don't have his reservation. He's carrying his own bag. He gets to the party at the White House. Nobody notices him because he's, you know, this short and you know, nondescript guy. He's so unique. And I think that for me, anyway, that makes me pull for him. And throughout this book, there are just so many things. I mean, I know I've, I've taken a bunch of your time here, but there's so much. It's still so worth reading. You're adding to what's in the book. People are not have not heard nearly the whole book. They've, they still need to pick up Vicksburg Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy. I hope that this whets their appetite. I wanted to close with one final question, and that's Vicksburg surrenders on the 4th of July, 1863. How does that change the date from one of celebrating American independence to one of bitterness? And how much of that ambivalence, if any, lingers here in 2020? Well, unfortunately, some of it does linger. The South is changing, but there are still hotbeds of secessionist feeling, I mean, rebel feeling about this issue. I mean, the raging debates recently about, I don't want to get into those, that, that's another topic, uh, Civil War monuments. But Vicksburg, for a long period of time, did not celebrate the 4th of July. There's a lot of arguments as to when it stopped, some say into the 50s. I didn't find that sentiment in, in Vicksburg when I was there. I, I found uh, people I met were very gracious. Now, I disagreed with a lot of them on a lot of issues, including the Civil War, which you know they saw in some ardent Confederates supporters still see it as the war of northern aggression. There's still that feeling that you get, but uh, I was never treated uh, with anything but the greatest respect there. So I didn't run into a lot of ugliness, but we're learning today that the ugliness, you know, can be ubiquitous. It can appear anywhere. But there were a lot of hard feelings after the war. I mean, you don't fight a war like this. And the South was a, a, a fifth world country after that war. I mean, they had been stripped of everything, their property, their industry was destroyed. Their railroad system was smashed. It took a long time to come back. And there's a legacy of bitterness. And you know, it was lasting. And was a one-party state democratic until the 1960s. Nixon and uh, a little bit early maybe with Eisenhower in some respects. But, um, yeah, it leaves, uh, it leaves a lot of scars for it's not an easy thing to, to forget. It really isn't. And you see, because you see the ardency, I mentioned this woman, Kate Stone, this young, I think she was about 20 years old, daughter of a plantation mistress and a very wealthy farm along the river on the Louisiana side. And she has a luminous autobiography she could really write. And a lot of these women inside Vicksburg equally well were trained at female academies and they could really write. And you're transported by some of the, some of her prose. And she was great at making friends with people, too. And she had a very close friend in Louisiana when she became a refugee. And at one point, there, these two friends are writing to one another. And she gets news. And she reports the news to her friend. She said, hallelujah, on this great day, um, the demon Abraham Lincoln has been shot by the hero John Wilkes Booth. And it just makes sense chills up your spine, you know, uh, when you read 
something like that. And there you see what I, I call the hotbed ardency the Confederates had, you know, toward the north. Yeah, it was a hard, hard thing to just forget about the war. And it's fought with the exception of places like Chambersburg and Gettysburg. It's, it's fought entirely on southern soil. You mentioned Patton. Patton said in that movie that his country had never lost a war. Well, they did. The South lost. Patton's relatives fought on the Confederate side. You mentioned not forgetting a war like that. People will not forget this battle after they read this book or this campaign, as you pointed out earlier. This is so sweeping. Yeah, yeah. It was transformative for me because I always try to write a book that I want to read. I really wanted to read a book like this that captured the full breadth of the battle, civilians, soldiers, slaves, etc. So I learned something. I learned a lot in the research. I learned a lot in the writing, and it was a transformative experience for me. Well, Donald L. Miller, author of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy, you also wrote a book that I wanted to read and that I learned a lot from. So I hope lots of people will pick up their entrenching tool here because we barely scratched the surface of this sweeping scope of your story. It's a fast-moving read about a slow-moving campaign, but the truth is indeed more interesting than the stories we've heard and the fictionalized versions of the stories of the South to come out of this war, to come at it through your eyes and see it fresh. It really was enjoyable. I hope readers will pick it up, get that chance to walk the historic ground, to sail into those bayous, up the rivers, and into the swamps, and see what history is speaking to us from the ground around Vicksburg, that hard, crusted ground. I thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I can't wait for your next one, because much like Supreme City, this was a book that'll stick with me a long time, and I hope that readers will find it the same way. Thank you, Dean. I really appreciate it, and thanks for a terrific interview. Your questions are great. Again, the book is Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Professor Donald L. Miller for joining us and for bringing us inside the siege that brought down the rebellion and raised up its greatest general. Let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. You can also enjoy my previous conversation with today's guest in our archives. That's the August 2015 conversation on Supreme City, How Jazz Age Manhattan gave birth to modern America. Learn how Gotham became, as Duke Ellington called it, the capital of everything. And for more on today's topic, find the interview with Sam Gwynn I mentioned, that book in our archives, in which U.S. Grant also features prominently, is Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. Well, That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. 
I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guy.